Um, it's my great pleasure today to welcome uh, an old friend from the New York Times and a terrific, terrific reporter. Uh, you know, I've got to say that Ray Bonner is sort of a legendary figure at the Times. He uh, not only was a superb reporter, uh, he was also a very brave reporter in the sense that he put himself in harm's way, not only doing his stories, but in confronting Abe Rosenthal <laughs> about, uh, about some of the stories that he did. Uh, both of those were acts of courage. He has been, uh, he has had a terrific career of uh, traveling all over the world. He's sort of the quintessential foreign correspondent and has been, um, I don't know, how many countries and continents have you, have you worked in? Right? I've, lived on, I've lived on every continent except Antarctica. Well, you got that to look I, I lose the count of the countries when I get to about a hundred. Um, his, uh, his new book, Anatomy of Injustice, A Murder Case Gone Wrong, uh, is a, uh, a detailed, in-depth uh, examination of, a, uh, of what certainly Ray believes was a miscarriage of justice. And it is one that, uh, that he's devoted an awful lot of time and energy and effort to not only reporting, but, but sort of living, as far as I can tell. I've asked him today, especially for the, uh, you know, for his part to talk about how he did the story, how he chose it, how he pursued it, uh, and then when he, uh, you know, when we open it up, you're welcome to address that or anything else. But I would like to start with that. But uh, first, let me just say, Ray, welcome. Very, very glad to have you back in the country for a minute and a half. Homeland Security doesn't work. They let me in. <laughs> uh, so the floor is yours. Thank you. Right, just one correction. It's not that Ray believes this is a miscarriage of uh, this is a miscarriage of justice. This is a miscarriage of justice. This is injustice writ large, and I will spell it out for you with all the vehemence and passion that I have. This is not Brady violations. This is cops planting evidence in line, period, full stop. I will say it in any public forum, any place, and there's got to be at some point a federal investigation. Cops planted evidence. Anyway, we'll get to that. If you don't want to talk about substance, he wants to talk to me how I got to this case. Um, I want you to lay the groundwork, though. I will. Yeah, I will. How I got to the story. Um, for my sins, I was brought back to the United States. And my wife was Jane Perlez, and she was the had been overseas. In fact, one of our first postings was in Nairobi, and people would always say to me, "Well, what are you doing in Nairobi? What are you doing here? You know, at cocktail parties or whatever." And I'd say, "Well, I'm either a liberated male or a kept man." Because <laughs> there were always Jane's postings, and I just followed. And uh, we, we managed Africa and then Eastern Europe. And they kept wanting to drag us back, drag us back, drag us back. And finally, Bill Keller said, well, I know you'd rather drink hemlock, but they managed to pull us back to the States for three years. And while she was covering the State Department, um, I had another moment of being in bad odor at the paper. Seemed to follow me every place at the paper. Um, on a Sunday, I, I heard the famous Bush with Tim Russert on Meet the Press which Russert asked him about the death penalty was right after Governor Ryan had, had suspended the death penalty in Illinois and let all those men off death row. 
And Bush said, I am confident no innocent man has ever been convicted or been, uh, executed in Texas, and everybody's had a fair trial. And my reaction was, brother, that is a throwing down of a gauntlet a la Gary Hart when he said, catch me if you can. That was, that was exactly my reaction. And I said, I said, this is much more serious. And the next day I went into the bureau, I was in, we were in Washington, I went in and I said to Jill, did you hear this? And she said she did. And she said, w would you like to go to Texas? And Sarah Reimer was already there. Sarah Reimer, who some of you may know, who lives in Boston, who is a really terrific reporter and colleague. And she and I spent, oh gosh, three, four weeks reporting on cases all around Texas. Um, looking for an innocent man executed, which you, we didn't find because you almost never find it uh, because the evidence dies when somebody's executed, basically. But we wrote a story that was like 3,500 words. That was back in the old days. Ran on the front page and with little sidebars inside. The paper was very happy. Jill and Dean McKay, interestingly, were the two editors on it. And they had us keep reporting. And we kept writing about the death penalty. Um, Parenthetically, uh, uh, it was a good idea, but I also think things are driven, and I, this is one of my bugaboos for journalists in the room. I think too much driven by Pulitzer's, although in this case I think it was okay. Um, and we kept writing about it, and during the course of it, I ran across this case in South Carolina uh, of this guy, Edward Lee Elmore. And this was in the middle of 2000. And there were two things about the case that struck me. One. I mean, I think you, there shouldn't be a death row to begin with. Then you can argue, take the next layer, that even if there, if there is a death row, there's a lot of people who should, if there is a death row, there's a lot of people who shouldn't be executed because they had horrible, horrible childhoods, mitigating circumstances, etc. And the category of people, they shouldn't be on death row because they didn't have a fair trial. Their constitutional rights were violated. Very few people on death row are factually innocent had absolutely nothing to do with the case. You know, they were either at the crime scene but they didn't pull the trigger or whatever. This is a case of absolute unequivocal innocence. That, so that was part of it. The other, even then, I, I don't know if I would have written about it. The other aspect of it, which is just extraordinary, is the lawyer, the appellate lawyer. And Steve Engelberg, a colleague of ours from the paper, a terrific investigative reporter who now runs ProPublica, said after he read the manuscript, it's a story of what bad, the damage bad lawyers can do and the inspirational story of what a good one can do. And that lawyer is a woman named Diana Holt. And if any of you have seen this issue of The Atlantic, the monthly, the, this issue, you'll see a big story about Diana, which is an excerpt from the book. Diana Holt, when she was 27 years old, was on her second husband, one who had tried to kill her, two children, no high school diploma, and was so badly sexually abused by her stepfather growing up that you can barely write about it. I mean, it was horrific. And Hearst and Anne, when Diana was 18 years old, she grew up in Houston, where her stepfather started abusing her literally at three years old. If you want some milk, put your mouth here. It's all in the book, so I'm not talking out of school. To continuing to when she was a teenager and he taught her to drive, 
fondled her and said, you know, well, this is what the boys are going to do. You know, took pictures of her naked. It was horrible, horrific stuff. When she was 18, she ran away from home, from Houston to New Orleans with some guys she'd met in a bar the night before. They ran out of money. So she goes, sits on a stool in the French Quarter. A guy comes over. They agree on the price. They go out to his car. Diana's new friends run up. Stick a gun in the guy's head. He reaches under his seat. He's a U.S. Marshal. Oh, True. It's a true story, Richard. She goes to prison for three years, parenthetically. At one brief period, there was a young lawyer who was going to represent her, <laughs> James Carville. <laughs> she dropped him, but his career didn't seem to suffer. Anyway, Diana, Diana gets out of prison, um, goes to Texas, turns her life around, has these marriages, etc., etc. Decides she's going to become a lawyer. Um, goes to community college, straight A's. Community college, straight A's. Southwest Texas, and gets into U University of Texas Law School. You know, I must say it's a credit to the University of Texas Law School that that it admitted her, given given her background. Um, anyway, so it was the two aspects that made me interested in the case, and you know. <coughs> Once I started it, and I think this is something about journalism too, I heard somebody speak at, in Sydney at the opening of the Sydney Film School, a young kid who was actually the son of friends of ours, started the Sydney Film School. And he spoke in the opening and he said he wanted the students to come out or to come in who have to have three C's, courage, conviction, and compassion. Courage, curiosity, and compassion. And I think there's a certain courage, not, not, not physical courage, but there's a certain you have to believe. If you're a journalist and you really believe in something, you sometimes have to stick with it against all odds. And the story behind the story of this book is, I started it in 2000. 2001, I'm really thinking it's going to, I couldn't even get a story in the paper. You know, they were tired of death penalty stories, another death penalty story, blah, blah, blah. You know, the Pulitzers were over, so interesting. No, they didn't didn't win. I that, that was the year of the race series when and we were Sarah and I were runners up. I mean I think the Pulitzers we can tell I think Pulitzer, Pulitzers distort journalism, but that's said. Um, I had to stay in Rwanda an extra month, you know. Um, so I stuck with the story and was supposed to, and I often thought that it was more a movie for obvious reasons, as you hear, than it was a book. And I was supposed to go to Hollywood and talk to an agent on September 20th, 2001. You can imagine that was canceled. <laughs> then we went to Indonesia. We got another. We escaped again, um, and we went to Indonesia for four years. But I could never drop the book. I could never drop it. It was just. I've often said, uh, you can only. People ask me about writing books. You can only write a book when you cannot not write it. It's got to be in your gut, just screaming to come out. I mean, I think you felt that way. You must have. You can't put yourself too much through too much work, too lonely, no, no rewards, no gratification. You're not sure it'll ever work. Publishers, although I had a brilliant editor, uh, you can only write a book when you cannot not write it. It's got to be in your gut. And that was this book. And I, 
the sequence isn't exactly right, but roughly it went like this. 9-11 um, came along. Then in 2002, I met with a, a publisher, and he, ah, you know, I'm not sure, nobody wants to confront the death penalty. It doesn't, at that time, it doesn't have an ending, et cetera, et cetera. I kept that. My publisher of my first three books just wasn't interested. Um, I kept at it. At one point, no, and then my publisher, which is Kanab, said, okay, we'll do it. And I don't remember what year we were in now. <laughs> Before I'd even signed the contract, John Grisham announces he's going to write a nonfiction book about an innocent guy on death row. <laughs> Not my case, but, you know, the publisher said, wait a minute, we ain't going up against that. <laughs> so that dropped. Jesus. X years later or whatever, I'm still, in, in Indonesia I had a room where I, had, one of the rooms in the house, this is when the New York Times used to pay for a few things, um, was, you know, all was devoted to this book. It was almost like a shrine. And on a wall were little pieces of paper, you know, trying to figure out the organization and I had all the trial transcripts and boxes of, the, and boxes of that. Because I based this book mostly, and this, I think being a lawyer really helps, and I like reading trial transcripts, and I read all the transcripts and all the background of everything. And I kept working on it. So at one point I sent it to a friend of mine who's an editor at Simon & Schuster, totally as a friend as I might send it to you or Richard or Steve or something, just totally as a friend. I said, would you read this? Should I drop it or should I keep it going? She calls up my agent and they offer me a substantial sum of money. I then have a falling out with Diana. So I have to drop the book. Oh, God. Yeah, no. <laughs> we then patch that up two years later. The book has an ending. There's an ending in the case, which I'm not going to tell you about because, as James Bennett said when he, and as the review said in the Boston Globe today, you don't want to give away the ending. Um, and I go back and I reread it and I send it to Simon and Schuster because I, obviously they'd offered me a lot of money before. They say, no. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> So Kanap then says, well, we'll do it. And they give me an advance, which probably wouldn't get me the a can of Diet Coke. I mean, <laughs> but this time, who cared? You know, I mean, I was so committed to this. And it's turned out my editor just did a brilliant job, Jonathan Siegel. I mean, I'm convinced there are two editors in this business, John Siegel and all the rest. And he edited it as if they had given me a half a million dollar advance. He was just brilliant. And he read every page, every paragraph, every sentence, every word, every column. And, you know, that was, you know, that's the result. So, have you, is the, is the reporting from this book, reporting that is based mostly on transcripts of the trials, the work that his lawyer did, I mean, have you gotten to know him? Are you allowed even to, uh, to, to know him? And if, were there reporting challenges to it in terms of, of being able to, to do the work that will allow you to write a book like this? There was, it's interesting you asked that I get to know him. Um, and it's interesting in the context of the book. At the beginning, when I started working on it, 2000, 2001 and around then, Everybody said, oh, it's got to be about him and it's got, or the relationship between him and the lawyer because it was right after Dead Man Walking, you know, and publishers always like, generals fight, fight the last war. Well, publishers want the last successful book. And, I mean, and so they, everybody wanted a book about him. Or, and, 
and I really had to fight this, and it was one reason I couldn't get a publisher for a long time. I mean, I really, and I'm only saying this to you not because I'm patting myself on the back at all. In fact, they're probably an over, overly stubborn. But if you really are committed to something, and if people like you are, if you're really compassionate, if you really care about something, bloody hell, stay with it. You know, the, the, the odds may be not the odds that you expect. And in this case, nobody wanted it, but I really believed in it. And, and I, so I couldn't do Elmore because even if I had spent, he's in, on death row, even if I had spent every day with him for months, which I couldn't do, he's, you know, 61 IQ, he, I wasn't going to really get into who Elmore was. And so that's why I had to tell the story through Diana, her story, and then the story of the case. And reporting that basically meant di doing a lot of interviews and digesting a lot of documents and, and the trial transcripts and the appeals and the hearings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then doing a lot of interviews. Can I ask what your falling out with her was about? Uh, it, was, I, it was something to do with, I, I'm not sure either she or I remember what it was. It was just we were both, I don't remember what it was. She thought I'd, I'd done something that, that I shouldn't have done. And, when you but we're, I mean, we're, we're really, really, really close friends now. Really close friends. So where does this leave you journalistically? Where are you going to go from here? Good. His wife is going to Beijing. Alex, if somebody put a gun to my head and said, what am I going to be doing three months or six months from now? I don't have a clue. You know, this, this, whole, this, is, you know, this has been a, a labor of, not of love, but a labor of injustice. And I don't, you know, I don't... Uh, I cannot think past about the 1st of April. How long did it take you to do the writing of it? Well, it was off and on. I mean, there's so many drafts. I mean, my drafts have drafts. I mean, I don't know how many, <laughs> how many uh, versions I did. I mean, it was very hard to organize because you couldn't exactly tell it chronologically because Diana doesn't come into the case until he's been on death row for 11 years. So, you know, I couldn't... I mean, the trial, the first trial, the murder in the first trial is in 1982. She doesn't get into the case until 1993. So, you know, and, and yet if she's going to play, this was one of the, the organizational problem was tough. If she's going to be a main character and going to play a main role, and yet you talked about, he had three trials actually. If you talked about three trials and you don't introduce her until the second half of the book, then all of a sudden you think, well, wait a minute, you know, where has she been through all this? And if she's such an important... I mean, I, I tried so many structures and so many organizational efforts. Um, what, what about his, I know that the, the first lawyers he had, you framed as drunk and incompetent. And racist. And racist. Did, did you connect with them? Well, one died. The other one, you know, it, it's, this is a journalistic story, too. If you like this. You know, one <laughs> a guy, Geddes Anderson, who was the lead lawyer, and um, looked a bit like Gregory Peck, Diana thought, when she first met him and was a swashbuckler and wore Panama hats and had tried to, tried to be in Hollywood and was pretty much a failure at everything, including in law, and thought Elmore was guilty from the get-go and did nothing to defend him. He, I talked to him quite a few times, and the last time I talked to him, during a, and i just give you a little bit of color, during... Um, an appellate hearing in the case, one of the questions was, how was it that Elmore's blue jeans had no blood on them? 
I mean, this crime scene was bloody beyond bloody, and yet his blue jeans had only a few pinprick spots of blood, which were probably planted. How was it? And during this hearing, the state's lawyer, somebody hands him a little piece of paper that said, the defendant picked her up by the ankles, dumped her in the closet, and underscored by the ankles. And we weren't sure, Diana wasn't, and I wasn't when I got this, this document, which was later introduced in another hearing, who wrote it? And I went all over Greenwood, South Carolina, and I talked to so many people, you know, I mean, prosecutors and cops and things like that. Who wrote this? Who wrote this? It turned out it was written by Elmore's defense lawyer. In other words, he was giving the state on appeal an argument to keep his guy, the guy on death row. So when I showed this to him, I went up to his office and I said, hi, and I said, blah, 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 blah. I said, listen, do you, does, do you know who wrote this? Did you write this? And he looked at me and he said, you know, I think you and I might have been friends at one time, but I don't think so anymore. I know what you're going to do to me. So, you know, but up until that point, he'd talked to me. He said, I still, I gave him a vigorous defense. I gave him the best defense you could. I was did, tough. Did he try to explain what he did? Yeah. He, what, only thing he did was argue that he, you know, he was convinced Elmore was guilty, but he still gave him a tough defense. I mean, a, a vigorous defense. He didn't. It was horrible. It was no defense. He did nothing. They did nothing. Well, I don't want to make this just a conversation between the two of us. So let me open this to... Uh, to first students, if there are students in the room who would like to ask a question of Ray, uh, you get priority. Just indicate by raising your hand, and if not, we will uh, we will proceed. Uh, we've got another reporter in the room. I know, Ron. When you when you hear the story of a book like this, uh, what's your take? Oh, geez, I am just a welter of emotions listening to you, Ray. <laughs> uh, sympathy, I just, um, you know, the tra the book trades and the ups and downs you've been through, um, and, and just the conversations of those publishers, you know, and the, the just the whims that drive them, just insubstantial nonsense in most cases. And, and this worked for someone else, so you do it like them. You're like, no, I have a story here. It's, I'm not a fiction writer. It's nonfiction. There are lives of people here. The evidence is whatever the evidence is, it unfolds as a human narrative. I don't know where the hell it's going to go. You know, the fact is, is that we sit around trying to back out these things. Well, it'll end like this. That's why there's so many lousy books. As people go in and say, here's what the book and here's how it ends. Then they force it when it gets into the pages. And the idea of you going through, I mean, Jesus, the, the decade, really, plus, on this ray, I, uh, my Boy, hat is off to you. I'm, no, my hat's off to you because... I hope you're having him teach or speak about how you get stories and documents aren't dumped on you. Because in your book, and I used this in a review, but I think it got cut out. Mm. In your book, I can't remember exactly what it was, how you got something. You know, everybody thinks, 
that we reporters sit around, guys like you and, you know, Cy and everybody else, Cy does get documents. He wakes up in the morning and I'm convinced the front porch is filled with documents. <laughs> <laughs> I've always believed that. But it doesn't happen that way. And it was how, you, and you know, it's how you put together, and I don't remember the incident. How you went to this person, he said X, and then you went to this person, he said, oh, but that's all right, it's Y. And then you went over, I mean, yeah. you know, it, it, these things aren't just dropped on us, you know, no, you, you just got to weave things and well, put you them gotta, together. Yeah, you got to play a kind of a game of four-level chess with a lot of people. And there, there was a guy at the CIA who says, you know, right. when you report, I'm great, you do the same thing. When you do what you do, what you're paid for, it's just like, you know, like those old grainy shots of Bobby Fischer in the gymnasium playing 40 games at once, <laughs> you know, walking around. There you go, there you go. And you got 40, 50, 100 sources, and they don't all know what the others are saying, which is crucial. Exactly. You know, and in a way, and in one of the in one percent doctrine, this, I mean, I thought this was a credible comic because he, he, the guy was number two at CIA, John McLaughlin. You have the book, he says, "This guy, Jesus Christ, you you ran in a goddamn intelligence operation on us. <laughs> no one knew what the others were saying, which is what you got to be judicious about." And when, but that gotcha moment with that lawyer, I mean, it's hard. They sniff it out earlier right. usually, and to get to some deliverable where the guy's like. You and I are no longer going to be friends. We were once friends. We are no longer friends. I mean, that's exactly the way he talked. That's a kind of summation which, you know, is a victory that the reader does want. You can't always get it for him. But congratulations on getting that. I mean, what was your... It, I'm interested in this. Uh, uh, the question Alice asked about your breach with uh, Diana. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I've gone through a bunch of those. These relationships are very complex because they're transactional. They are, but they're also heartfelt at the same time. And I'm interested in the twists and turns of your decade-plus relationship with this woman, where you breach, you come back together. What was the consequence of that? What caused it? How did it go forward after that? Was it a kind of healing? Did she learn things from... Maybe what she thought, and then what she considered. Uh, you know, how did you get her to? Well, look, look. I mean, you have to. I have to. One has to. And when you read the book, or you know, just read the excerpt in the Atlantic. I mean, this woman trusted me with her life story. I mean, that is a incredible amount of trust for the things and her. 20 sons in her 20s did not know about the prison incident until about six months ago, and the book's coming out, and she decided she had to tell them. Now, now, you talked to her about that beforehand? Well, she, yeah. I, I, I possibly crossed the pure journalistic lines with her. I'll be very honest about yeah. it. I dealt with her a lot. She read a lot of the book. Yeah. She didn't change anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I thought there were a couple times I criticized the way they handled the case. She didn't change anything. I used to have that rule too. You know, you never let them in the tent with you. But you know, it's their life. But it, it and you, you got know, it's different yeah. writing a book than it is. I mean, it's very hard, particularly coming from the New York Times, where yeah. you know this so strict and rightly. I'm not criticizing the paper. But I went further. But you know, this woman trusted me with her life, yeah. her life story. I mean, this. You know, what was interesting to me was. She was less concerned about the stuff coming out about the sexual abuse, which I just find, you know, mm. just than than about the prison incident. Mm. And she had not told her sons until about six months ago, wow. eight nine months ago. You know, there. I don't know whether 
many of you saw the cover of the New York Times Sunday Book Review this Sunday, but the lead review was very much about this kind of book, except it was a book that purported to be nonfiction, but in which the author had basically assumed the license that he was not bound by the actual facts of the case, and he had the literary and artistic license to simply change things because it made it in the service of a larger truth. And it conflated things, he added things, he changed, I mean, he changed 34 to 31, or 31 to 34, because it sounded better, or was sexier, it came, I mean, it was a, but it was a, what, what he did was to make the argument effectively that this is not fiction, this is non-fiction, this is true, but it is not true bound by the conventions of actually having to report the facts as they are. And, and it is a, you know, if, if we live in a digital world in which things can be altered and manipulated. I, I don't know whether this is a, a part of that or not. But at the same time, we all know that if you write this kind of book, there is art in it. There is selective choice of what facts you include and what things you leave out and how you structure it, what, how you tell the story. So that it is an artistic sort of question and there are choices, yeah. and everything doesn't go in. It's not, the, you know, the kitchen sink. But can you then also take it that further step to say, and I'm also not bounded by saying that this happened on this day when in fact it never happened? Yeah, I don't think you've got that license. Did you, did you read that? Did you no, read I, didn't, that? I didn't read it. Well, the, what did Dave Eggers, what is the what? It's the same right. thing the Sudanese guy. I mean, you know, he says it's nonfiction, but it's fictionalized. I, that I agree with Ray. I mean, that's a line you, you just don't cross. I mean, everything in the book must be true and verifiably so. I mean, otherwise, why are we there? Yeah. You know, write a novel. Go write a novel. That's what yeah. you want to do. But if you cross that line, yeah. the reader loses the essentially the verisimilitude of life, which is what it is. They're not sitting with the person for weeks at a time. You are months, years sometimes. But you know, you got to trust truth and follow wherever it goes, which is the problem. Is the thinking going all kinds of directions? And I used to have a thing with the with the folks at the journal when they'd say, "Oh, here's what's happened to the story. Oh, per it's perfect." I'm like, "Perfect for what? <laughs> for whom? This pre-existing notion you had is, you know, as to how it'll be just right, based on your assumptions of how the world works. Well, you know, oh, perfect is is trouble because when you go off the grid, to oh, where are we going here? That's when it turns good, right, right? You're like, Jesus, I don't know where this is going to end. Well, you also have the, the repertorial question of, of dealing with these sources in a way that is calculated and also candid. Listen, Janet Malcolm got it absolutely right in the, in the journalist and the murderer. Yeah, yeah, well, I know, well, no, but I, I, I have a hedge on that. I mean, I think, you know, and I can quote, though, how many years ago she write that goddamn thing? I can quote it by word. Well, now, you know, did like, you think that you betrayed your? I didn't betray him. But you think I went in there? No, she doesn't say she betrayed him. We go in there and we seduce him. You want me to read it to you? Well, all right. If that's what you said, I don't think like, you the, like the widow who wakes up him. in the morning to see the handsome stranger and all her money is gone. Yes. Journalists you are know, engaging I mean, in one of the other guys in this book. Is, I don't is, agree with that. I got Jimmy Holloway Jr. and his father is the neighbor who found the body, etc., etc., etc. And Holloway said to me at one point, 
you think my father did it, don't you? You know, and what am I going to say? Yeah, I think your father did it? No, I suspect you didn't. Well, I didn't come, I, didn't, I came close. I said, well, I, I haven't made up but my he, mind. It was almost a rhetorical question because he knew damn well what I, what I think his father did. But I also said, well, it doesn't make any difference what I think. There are a lot of people who think he did, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, okay. Where? Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm Josh. I'm an MPP1 here at, at Harvard Kennedy School. And before uh, coming here, I worked against the death penalty in Ohio, and I'm from Texas. Um, <laughs> so where, when you were uh, both generating the book, or did you feel, both when you were um, writing it and then now, where do you feel like this narrative fits in perhaps the broader national narrative that's now becoming more and more against the death penalty or saying, well, it's at least really broken? Um, it's interesting, a, a couple of the reviews um, have said it's not a polemic against the death penalty. But you can't, uh, on the other hand, another review said it's a thrilling and uh, poignant indictment of capital punishment. But um, I, it's really one story of, of injustice, outrageous injustice. Um, and I think from that you can obviously draw conclusions about the death penalty. I, you know, I, I, I'm against the death penalty. I, I come down where, where um, when Sarah and I were doing these these stories for the paper, I interviewed the DA in Wisconsin who prosecuted Jeffrey Dahmer. I don't know if you remember that case. He was a horrible, horrible guy. Those kids off the street and then carved up their bodies and stuffed them down toilets and things like that. And and, the, and this DA who prosecuted that man said, I'm still against the death penalty because he doesn't think the state ought to be taking lives. And that's that's basically where I where I come out at it. Look, I think the anti-death penalty people are clearly going to use this book and, and delighted they are. I don't think that the pro death so somebody was saying last night, you know, the death penalty activist supporters are going to go after you. I don't think they're going to be able to. Because there's very little in this book they can point to and say, I've distorted it or I've made it. You know, these are, this is, <laughs> this is, this, this is, these are the facts. This is the way it happened. You know, and I talked to all, you know, the prosecutors, well, not the one prosecutor's dead, but the prosecutor on the third case, et cetera, et cetera. Um, do you think they'll end the death penalty? I don't think so. I'll tell you where I think we are in the death penalty. I think we're one vote away. And I think there was a piece somebody wrote not long ago saying there's one reason to vote for Obama, and that's the Supreme Court and the death penalty. I think we're one vote away now. I have a friend who's a death penalty lawyer that thinks I'm, you know, out of a gourd that, it's, that they still won't get rid of it. We've got a dinner any place in the world if it does or doesn't happen, but I think if you if if one of the four conservatives on the court for some reason leaves and you, and Obama gets to replace him, I think Sandra Day O'Connor was very very close. I would not have been surprised. So I think they're one vote away. Richard, where does the death penalty nest today in the larger issue of uh, incarceration? Uh, we've had an explosive growth of total prison population and a radical decline in uh, executions. What, what, do we want to, what do we want to draw or understand about that? You know, 
well, I, I, Richard, I'm, you know, I don't live here. I don't even know there was an explosion in incarcerations. <clears throat> I don't really, I don't really feel I'll, like I'll grab it for you after that. That's true. When you, yes, go ahead. Um, I have the, I'm Charlie Clements. I have the privilege of knowing Ray when he was a Cub reporter. Uh, I think you can say, Ray, you mentioned kind of two. Uh, At 40 years old, a Cub reporter. <laughs> <laughs> the oldest Cub reporter. <laughs> you mentioned uh, two, uh, Odorous periods, I think, was a, the, the, your <laughs> reference to the New York Times, and one of them I, was when we knew each other. Wondered how you look back on that, if you want to tell people a little, little bit of, about the circumstances and, uh, years years later now. How I look back on it, or you want me to tell you about the circumstances <laughs> and what happened? Look, both. I mean, you want to fill them in, or do you want me to fill them in? Yeah, I mean, what what Charlie is referring to um, goes back to Central America. Which some of you are so young that you probably study it in ancient history, but for some of us, we lived it. Um, and it was at a time when it was on the front page and the major foreign policy issue. It was when communism, before terrorism and Islamism became the bugaboos. And uh, I was in Central America, a cub reporter, but at 40 years old because I'd been a lawyer writing, and I wrote about a massacre and, uh, at El Mesote. And the Reagan administration went after me, as did the Wall Street Journal, with a vengeance. And I had a few problems at the New York Times with Dave Rosenthal, uh, <coughs> Alex referred. Um, and eventually I left the Times, whether I was pushed or jumped, I think is a debatable question. Um, I don't know, Charlie. I mean, part of me, look, I've, I said at the time a lot after that, I remember saying, I remember saying to Scott Simon, and it later came out that what I reported about the massacre was absolutely right, and the government had all the documents which proved it was right in 60 minutes that it showed. You know, Scott Simon from NPR said, do you feel exonerated, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, look, we're in this business, you know, and we give people a hard time, and we've got to be able to take it. You know, it goes with the territory. It goes with the territory. And I made some mistakes. I mean, I look back. I said this yesterday speaking to the to the Neemans. Um, I looked at Central America. Abe looked at Central America. I mean, I think we had an intellectual, a real true intellectual as well as political difference. Abe came to Central America from the background of having spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe and having seen communism. I went to Central America and I hadn't had that experience. And particularly when I went to Nicaragua, you know, the place looked like a paradise compared to, which was a Marxist, you know, under, under, under Ortega at that time. Um, and I looked at it and it seemed like a pretty decent place compared to El Salvador, which was supposedly a, an American-backed democracy. So, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, I look back, let, let me tell you, it's what I said to the Neemans yesterday. I've had the greatest life you can imagine. I was ran into a friend in, in St. Andrews, Scotland, where I spent a lot of time. The weather was really shite there, as it usually is, and I was heading off someplace where there was sunshine, and he said, Jesus, you got it made. And I said, what do you mean? He said, he said, you lead the life of leisure. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you don't have to work. I said, I never worked. I never worked. I never considered it. You know, 
I look, I look, I was not, I don't think, Abe was not totally wrong. <laughs> we just saw the world differently. We just saw the world differently. Other questions? When you look at foreign correspondence now, you look at Jane, of course, who's in a privileged position working for one of the remaining real, uh, genuinely ambitious news organizations. Um, and you look at the commodity of foreign news. Is there anything to worry about, or is that uh, really going to be, is the, in the case of foreign news, is that simply something that uh, we're going to be getting in a different way than we've had in the past? Oh, I think it's definitely something to worry about, and I think it's been something to worry about. I mean, I can remember 10 years ago starting to worry about it. I remember 10 years ago looking around and realized there was a Danish newspaper, literally, that had more foreign bureaus than any American newspaper. I mean, it's, 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 it's simple. The world is getting smaller, and we know less about it. I mean, look at the, the, the I mean, it is to the, you know, I mean, you know what the Times did in the 70s when everybody was retrenching and the Times expanded, and they've done the same thing. They haven't cut back on their foreign coverage. <coughs> I mean, I think the Times is the only one still standing when so it comes to foreign Do we need coverage. this expensive commodity to foreign correspondent? Can we not depend on citizen journalists who will, you know, take cell phone photographs and keep us surprised with what's going on in the world? Look, I don't think I, I don't think we're the be all end all, and I don't think we walk on water. But, but by God, I think we add something to the mix that's beyond what citizen journalists can do. We need their photographs, and we need what they say. But you need a little bit of a little bit of uh, objectivity, even if we're not the perfect objectivity that we think we are. No, you you know, and I think what you're getting more and more of, and I think it's right in particular to paper at the Times is more and more you're getting more analysis, if you will, and less breaking news. Because look, by the time you get up in the morning and you get the New York Times, you already know what happened. If you, if you haven't seen it on whatever, you, you, you know what happened. You know what's happened. Um, no, I think there's, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I think it's fantastic the Times still devotes as many resources as it does to foreign coverage. You know, it's a tragedy what's happened at the Washington Post, what's happened at, you know, the LA Times. Real tragedy. The world is smaller. I mean, we all know that. You need to know more about it, not less. Ray, when you when you take this book out on the road, I mean, you're doing your your, right. your dog and dog and show. show. Do people do people want to know about the story? Do they want to know about the journalism? Do they have some sense of the idea that this was? I don't know, this is my first appearance. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> Yesterday was. But I mean, the, you, you, made the, you made the point of comparing it to, you know, uh, Dead Man Walking. What about, you know, In Cold Blood? Well, I, I, I mean, I'd more like it to think about it in terms of Gideon's trumpet, you know, with the Tony Lewis book, the great Tony Lewis book. Uh, I read In Cold Blood. I kept rereading it. I underlined it. I wrote in the margins. I, you know. <laughs> But it was for style more than, as well as as uh, executioner's song, the Mailer classic. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd rather. I, I would hope it would be you know, somewhat arrogant to put myself yeah. in that league, but I would hope it would be like Tony Lewis's Gideon's Trouble. Did you cast the movie yet? Um, it's 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 um, 
a friend of mine who, who wrote the book that became the movie about Mandela, Mandela Invictus had me send it to his agent. I sent it to him, and he was very, very, very positive about it. Very, uh, and he sent it to Cody Spielberg, Kathleen Kennedy, Natalie Portman, Tom Hanks, blah, 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 blah. Real agents. So far, no one have signed it up. But I had, I had uh, the other night somebody who may have spoken here, Nancy Brisky. Do you remember Nancy? She used to be the picture editor on the Foreign Desk at the Times and the New York Times. And she um, has just done this documentary, The Loving Couple, which many of you may have seen. It's about the, the mixed marriage in, in Virginia, which went all the way to the Supreme Court and they declared um, the situation <coughs> statutes unconstitutional. And, Nan, and I just saw Nancy, I hadn't seen her in 30 years, and, we, and I went up with Nyack, to Nyack with her when she was sharing the movie, and we talked about it, she's very interested. She, so I, I suspect there, and I've talked to Alex Gibney, uh, and a couple others, so I suspect there will be a movie. I mean, I, it's just, it's, 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 it's got to be a Hollywood movie. Are you a character in the book? No, absolutely. That I, you know, that I took away from the New York Times. There's not the word I is not in that book, and you know, I just couldn't do it. I was, I mean, a lot of the, lot of the investigation, a lot of what came out, and in fact, a lot of what lawyers end up using in their briefs. Some of them, that's too strong. Some, uh, I did, and a lot of stuff I learned that was outside of what they learned. But no, I'm not in the book. Nancy, uh, Ray, I have a question about um, the difference between press coverage of injustice like this and all the people that Richard talks about who are in prison versus our media culture, which is huge. Everybody watches Law & Order, CSI, all these dramas about this, yet really the Times, like you said, sort of got tired of covering this death penalty story. And in general, there's very little press coverage, but there seems to be public interest in it as a fictional story. I just wondered what you thought about that. I don't, I, again, I don't live here, so I don't, I don't know these programs. That I, but there's always been interest in it. I remember. 1830 or whatever it was, you know, watching the FBI story and Dragnet and Perry Mason and stuff like that. I mean, it's the, it's the dilemma with, with newspapers. I mean, I really did get frustrated. They really had had enough of, of writing about the death penalty, and I kept finding, trying to figure out other ways to write about it, and I thought I'd, I'd come up with them, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's, it's really tough. It's really tough. It's the same with foreign coverage. I mean, I mean, I said yesterday to Neiman's, there's a woman there, a reporter from Guatemala. When I was in Central America, I mean, I used to say El Salvador, people would say, well, uncovered, undercovered. Well, El Salvador was undercovered, but Guatemala was uncovered. You know, it's, it's, and, but I think that's part of the tension between the journalist and the editor also. I think, look, you can't fight with your editors all the time, like I did way, way, way too much. Um, but you have to also believe in something and push it. And you you know, you have to find that line and I don't know where it is. I don't know where I mean there's one of the greatest foreign correspondents, Carlotta Gall, right back here. I mean look at the places she's gone. And I'm sure she was never thought about whether her editors wanted the story or not. By God, she was gonna go Chechnya and Bosnia and every other hellhole she could find and uh, and write about it. You know, I'm sure your editors a lot of times they, they weren't very encouraging. I can't believe it. You know, you went because you believed in it. You thought the story needed to be told. But there is a tension, and I, you know, I mean, I, I, re I really, I'm not being joking, I really have 
gone too far on the other side and fighting with editors. But on the other hand, you can't just always say, well, the newspaper's tired of it. I mean, the, the, the Elmore story, I kept going back to him and back to him and back to him. And finally, when David Shipley became the national editor, I said, hey, David, I've got this story. I mean, so what if it's been in the can for six months? You know, how about let's get it in the paper? And what did he say? And they put it in the paper. <laughs> <laughs> on page A36 or something like that. At least he got in. Well, when you hear someone like Ray talking about being a foreign correspondent and about being in the situation of, you know, spending your life, <coughs> much of your life, abroad and uh, in, in pursuit, does it ring? Does it ring true to you? Is this what you think it is? A hundred percent. He's my great hero. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think it's so so great to see Ray still doing stuff that I can admire and aspire to 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 following. Uh, we were talking just yesterday about Marie Colvin, who was a good friend of mine, but far greater friend of, of Ray's, and what what her death in Syria means to us. And uh, I think it it, it shows. As, as Ray's work does, that we've got to keep doing it. Um, and my reaction, and some, some people wonder, was it worth her going there? Was it worth going to Holmes? And 100% I would say yes, because even if we can't stop a war or change policy or, or do anything, we can at least just be there and put it on record. And I think, um, you know, her, her getting killed is terrible, but what she was doing was the right thing. <coughs> it's interesting what you say about that and what you raised earlier about citizen journalists because a friend of mine, when, when, when Marie said, got killed, said, and I didn't know Marie very well, very well. <coughs> um, um, said, well, she didn't have to go there because, you know, we got enough <coughs> film out of there. But yeah, but no, but that's this was a very intelligent person and a very caring person. But her first reaction was, she, it's too bad she lost her life because she didn't have to do it. Now, you know, there's a balance. You got to know what risks to take. I mean, Anthony Shadid said that he he subsequently decided that the story in Libya that that he went in on and when he and Tyler and Lindsay and Steve got captured, I think he subsequently said he shouldn't have done it. That it wasn't worth it. It is a fine line. Does the circumstances of her death being targeted, being using sophisticated electronic means to identify a place where journalists were and then seeking to destroy that, is that prospectively going to change the life of people who are being journalists in these dangerous places? It, it, it's already changed the way we work. I mean, we were actually targeted in Chechnya for that. You, um, you had to be incredibly careful. We didn't have cell phones in those days, but we had sat phones. And we would, we would send a message or speak for three minutes, and then we would close down, and then we would move. And we would usually do it in the countryside, so we didn't bring a target on a house. And we would move, we would drive five kilometers away immediately after ending the phone call. Because you, you may remember General Dudayev, who was the resistance leader against the Russians, he was killed by the GPS on his satfa. He was killed while he was talking on his satfa. So we know the Russians have had that technology since then. That was 90, 95. 
Um, and I think Syrians definitely have it because they have Russian technology as well. But even Pia Zubar Shah, who's fellow Neiman here from Pakistan, when I went to Baluchistan or whenever you go somewhere in the tribal areas, you, you don't take your phone or you, you take the battery out and the SIM card out to avoid being tracked by the GPS mm -hmm. so that the government doesn't know where you are. Um, those are those are things that I think all these citizen journalists are learning the hard way, but you can be tracked by your cell phone and by your sat phone. And I think Marie also knew that. Um, I, I, I guess she was trusting that the place they were based wasn't going to be targeted, but my, my, you know, as I listen to Carlotta, my guess now is, and I haven't looked at it, my guess now is somebody else with her. I mean, I'm sure, listen, Marie was as, as experienced as you are. I mean, she was one very, and she was not, she didn't do foolish things. And my guess is now that you say this, well, she had somebody she was with. Yeah, well, but, but also she was using a sat phone. We know that uh, she was at calling. the time it was hit. No, I don't not know. But what it was was it was a, it was a place that the Syrians were using as well. That's and they right. had their own. That was silly. So that that was, I think, perhaps a mistake. I think the point was, and I haven't been reporting from Syria, but I suspect they trusted that although the place was under siege, it was it was a random artillery shell rather than targeting, and that they wouldn't be targeted. Um, but yeah, I, I would have been very uncomfortable in that house myself um, because I know they have the technology and, and we know, you know, the Americans. They have the technology and also the rules have changed. You know, we were talking about this yesterday. When I was in El Salvador, um, again, this is back in the 1800s, it seems like, but I mean, when I was in El Salvador, <laughs> they, they put a, a death list or something. I can't remember. Well, you remember Charlie and a bunch of journalists on it. And we went out and got t shirts made, or somebody did. With 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 bullet mar uh, uh, targets on them and your number on the back, so I was number two on the death list, and so I wore number two. And I go jogging in the streets, and I jogged past soldiers. You know, they didn't they didn't target journalists. We had a certain immunity, but we don't have it anymore. We don't have it. Nor does the Red Cross. Just the opposite. And the Red Cross deserves it. I'm not saying we should have it. I mean, you know, but the Red Cross needs it and should have it. And I guess since Chechnya, they haven't targeted the Red Cross again, though. Well, Al-Qaeda does. Do they? Yeah. Um, anyway, um, it's changed. The rules have changed. And, you know, with citizen journalists out there, citizen journalists, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to really change the rules of the game because they're going to play by different rules. They are advocates for one side or another. And governments and other people are going to think all journalists are the same. I mean, you go to countries, and the number of countries I've been to, I mean, one of the things in American journalism is separation between church and state. The editorial board and the reporting, and no place is it clearer than the Wall Street Journal, where the reporting is as good as it gets, and the editorial pages, you know, is as troglodytes. <laughs> but you go to countries, you know, and I'm telling you, even in European countries, because Europe newspapers don't have it either, and you try to convince, and I tell them, well, the New York Times editorial say this, that ain't us. They even in Europe. Because in, in Britain, I mean, the FT is a bloody damn good newspaper, but the FT editor is the, is the editor of the editorial page and of the news pages. Totally different. Dude. Going back to foreign corresponding and war corresponding, I, I think the, the rules change, but the basic rules 
don't change. That you have to put yourself at risk to get the story. Whether that's that's the basic thing for everybody. And I think if you don't feel a little bit that it can't happen to you, you don't have that denial. You couldn't do it. And I, I remember when I was shot in Vietnam, I said, what, what, what is this? They can't be doing this to me. Uh, it was, you shot the wrong man. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, don't you think that's true? There's a little bit of, if you didn't have that denial, you just couldn't do but, it. But it's so subconscious that you don't even think about that's it. Right. I mean, I didn't think about, well, they're yeah. not going to kill me, you know? Yes. I mean, I think I did some play. I mean, I think running in El Salvador was probably among the more foolish things I've done, and the list was pretty long, but yeah. I mean, I think, so there I was thinking, I did think, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to shoot me. Yeah. But I think for the most part, David, we don't we 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 totally suppress it. We don't of think it's going to happen to me. We just don't think about it. Well, that's part of it. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. if you did, you could. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. You know, you yeah. wouldn't go. You wouldn't do anything. You wouldn't do anything. No, it's it's. You know, and everybody asks me, where did you feel the most dangerous? Where did you? Where were you? And you know, I suspect. I came a hell of a lot, and I'm sure you did too, and I know she has, came a hell of a lot closer to losing it than we've ever had any idea. Mm -hmm. Than we ever had any idea. Who knows that you didn't put that satellite phone away, Carlotta, three seconds before somebody rapped on that door and you would, I mean, I, I suspect, but you don't, you're right, David, we don't think about it. And it's not, be, I, see, I don't, I don't like this idea that war correspondents, and you know, it's not a free, we don't call them war correspondents in America. I mean, it, I don't, I mean, we call them, the Brits call them war correspondents, but I don't think, I don't, I don't think this idea that it's an adrenaline rush and, you know, we, we can't wait to get out there and we're, I don't think that's what does it. I don't think that, I don't know what does it. I mean, Rwanda's the place I think that had the biggest, the biggest impact on me. I know, I, I've never, I, I don't know, maybe we're just not very. But as you were philosophical saying, and introspective, I don't know. As you were saying before we came out to do this about David Rogue, another former correspondent who said, it gets inside you. His wife does not want him to go abroad. David Rhodes. He's on the Turkey-Syrian border right now. He does have a proclivity to get I'm sorry to say we're out of time. You know, uh, Ray, it's great to have you back in the United States. I hope you're going to continue doing your work, man. Thanks. And uh, thank you for being with us.